Beyond Belief Sobriety is a podcast and community for people who are seeking or who have found a secular path to recovery from addictions of all kinds. Hello, and thank you for spending some of your time today to listen to our podcast. I hope it's a good experience for you and that it adds a little something extra to your stockpile of recovery capital. My guest for this episode is Ted Perkins, author of a new book, Addicted in Film, Movies We Love About the Habits We Hate. Ted's lifelong love of film, his career in television and film production, as well as his experience as a person in recovery, make him uniquely qualified to write this book, that examines addiction and recovery in all its complexity through the stories told about it on both the large and small screen. But before we get started, I would like to take a moment to thank our friends at Soberlink for sponsoring this episode. We need to talk about alcohol recovery in the workplace. Talking about sobriety and proving it to your employer can be so difficult. And our friends at Soberlink want to help. If you need a reliable way to present documented proof of sobriety to a boss or loved one, Soberlink can help. Soberlink is a high-tech portable breathalyzer system that uses facial recognition technology to verify identity, has unique sensors to ensure that no other air sources are being used, and sends results directly to your specified contacts so there's no questioning whether or not you took the test and whether or not you altered the reporting. This is why Soberlink's remote alcohol monitoring system is considered the gold standard. Being in recovery from alcohol does not define the future of your career. Let Soberlink help. Learn more about Soberlink and request an exclusive $50 off promo code by visiting Soberlink.com BBS. And now episode 287, Addicted in Film. I begin the conversation by asking Ted... What inspired him to write this book? Uh, well, I, I've been around film for my whole life. Um, you know, growing up, I, I grew up overseas. And one of the great things about and my father and mother were in the Foreign Service. And one of the great things about the Foreign Service was that anywhere you go, you have access to all of the movies made by all of the studios, thanks to the Armed Forces Radio and Television Network. So uh, literally from the time I was five to six or whatever, to the time I was 14 and, and went to high school in the States, I saw every movie that was ever made by the studios in any given year. So every Saturday, my sister and I would watch, you know, American movies. And so I love them. I love movies. And um, I always liked creativity as well. So after I graduated high school and got my graduate degree, I moved to California and I, um, I started working in the film industry and, uh, you know, just moved up the ladder and and I was, I was very fortunate to be like a, one of the youngest uh, studio executives in international over at Universal Pictures and Warner Brothers and had sort of like a bird's eye view of the goings on at, you know, very high levels and, you know, worked with movie stars and big producers and worked on big marketing campaigns for big movies and, and uh, learned a lot. And, um, you know, in the course of, of going through a career like that, you know, obviously, Alcohol and going to parties was a huge part of the job, you know, and, and still is, you know, uh, you, you really can't work in the movie business if you don't, uh, you know, party. And if you go, you know, and in fact, one of my jobs as a studio executive was to take clients out for, for dinner and drinks. And, you know, every time we went to the Cannes Film Festival, I would pick up these thousand dollar tabs with, 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 after all these movie stars would, would be drinking at the, 
at the uh, at the Cap Hotel and 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 the and the Martinez, etc. So it was it was just a big part of it. And then you know when I started working as a screenwriter and a producer, th- those industries are very uh, cyclical. Like you're up, you're down, you're you're waiting, you're working really hard, and then you're waiting for other things to happen. And so I unfortunately I started uh, using alcohol. Uh, badly, you know, and it sort of like to pass the time. And then it became a problem. And then I dealt with the problem successfully by um, you know, turning to smart recovery and doing my own work. And then also I decided like maybe these movies um, about drugs and alcohol and recovery have something interesting to say about it. And so I sort of barricaded myself in my room uh, with an iTunes account and watched a hundred movies in a hundred days. And it actually probably I ended up probably watching more movies, but I started to see patterns and I started to see that uh, movies are really very interesting vehicles to tell some very profound things about not just addiction, but uh, the story of people overcoming um, addiction and uh, some of the heroic efforts that people go to and some of the sad endings and some of the heroic endings. And so I thought there was something really cool there. Is it true that Hollywood was doing kind of is, does a little bit of a delicate dance around this, that addiction might not be the the topic that they really want to cover and that certain um, like you were writing about. Um, one of the actors, I think Jack Lemon, uh, who was a, known as a comedic actor, um, might not want to be shown in a movie where he's an alcoholic, you know. But so there's a lot of that interesting stuff behind the scenes there. Well, you know, the the issue with that is that, you know, as I as I mentioned in the book, and especially in the introduction, it's kind of a miracle that these movies about addiction recovery exist at all because uh, it was a very touchy subject and. You know, it's kind of a Debbie Downer uh, topic. Um, and so for movies like The Lost Weekend to come out and for movies like, you know, Days of Wine and Roses to come out, there were really big risks. And, you know, directors like Billy Wilder really had to fight with the studios to make these kinds of movies. Uh, and Blake Edwards, you know, who did Days of Wine and Roses, he really, really had to fight with the studio to get his vision across because they had a very compelling reason uh, to make these movies and they had something very important to say and they wanted people to know that these were issues and problems that should be talked about uh, because you know alcoholism and drug abuse were these things that sort of happened in the shadows and they were swept under the rug and so for mainstream audiences to see that was you know in a sense it was a public service but it was also a great story so it accomplished both aims and and the actors who who were in these films took huge risks like Ray Milland who starred in um, The Lost Weekend you know, everybody told him from his agent to his managers to even the studio executives said, you know, this is going to kill your career. Don't do this movie. You're nuts. But something inside him said, you know what, this is really important. And it paid off. You know, he, he you know, every, he won multiple Oscars and he went on to a huge career. Jack Lemmon's career was only bolstered by this, uh, by his performance in Days of Wine and Roses. When, you know, look at, look at what happened to Nicolas Cage when he took a risk and and you know he would he could very easily be making ten million dollars a movie doing The Rock and all these big action movies, but he did Leaving Las Vegas, playing a crazy drunk, and he won the Academy Award. And you know even even people like um, Angelina Jolie, who um, you know her her first huge breakout role was in Geo, where she plays I never a, knew a that, and I've never seen that movie. I have got to watch that. Oh, it's uh, it's it's one. I mean, it, it it like I said in the book, if you like full frontal nudity, people doing drugs at <laughs> 54, and you know, a, a killer '80s soundtrack, and 
and reckless disregard for all common sense. That's a perfect movie for you. And it's on HBO. So if you have an HBO now, then you can see the movie for free. So you started the book um, with the, the first movie that you, you wrote about was The Lost Weekend. And I guess that is probably one of the better known historically um, of the films about addiction. I don't know if it was the first or not, but wh- why, why did you choose to focus on that one? Well, it really is the seminal moment for uh, movies about addiction and recovery and alcohol. It really was the first studio movie to actually go there to that place. Um, nobody really knew what alcoholism was. I mean, the, the, the term had only been coined, you know, a couple of years earlier. Um, Alcoholics Anonymous and the whole idea that alcohol use could be a problem of pathology was very little known. You know, it was sort of like, you know, your Uncle Bob has a problem and he can't go to work and, you know, he needs to go to the hospital. He's not feeling well. Those are the ways that you would talk about alcoholism um, back in the day. And so this movie sort of brought it out and, and showed that, you know, anybody can get into that sort of problem. And, and, and the film is very unique in the sense that even though it was done, you know, 70, 80 years ago, it still is super resonant today. I mean, if you watch the movie now, and I, I watch the movie every month, uh, and I always see something new in it, it really touches on everything from enabling to the lies that people tell themselves to finding meaning in life, the lack of meaning in life, to the issues of whether you drink to forget your problems or whether your problems are caused because you drink. It's the chicken or the egg conundrum. Um, you know, how you move forward once you decide that that you don't want to you know, engage in, in alcohol anymore. It's it's a very profound film. It, it touches on so many aspects of addiction recovery. I thought it was very important to put it first. And then you also wrote about the film Leaving Las Vegas, which was interesting in that that movie didn't have a happy ending. Right. <laughs> so. Well, um, and that's and that's, you know, part of, uh, you know, the, the one. And I, I tell this story in the book is that. Lila Cazes, um, who was the producer of the movie, you know, she she had Nicolas Cage and she had this great screenplay and she shopped it around to all the studios and the studios met with her and said, you know, we like it. It's really interesting. You know, I think it's super topical. But, you know, he dies. At he the does. End. Can you like change it so that he goes to rehab and then he hooks up with Elizabeth Shue and they live in the suburbs and she becomes a social worker and they have kids and they live happily ever after. And Lila Cazes just laughed them out of the room because you know, the point of the movie, um, the bigger point of the movie is to show that, you know, recovery is not guaranteed. Successful recovery is, a, is, is really sometimes the exception to the rule. And we have to sort of be aware of that and also, you know, also understand that some people are just not at a place where they're going to, you know, seek help. And that's tragic, but we can all learn from that. Um, it also has some very important things, I think, to say about um, you know, the question of suicide and finding meaning. And I talk about Viktor Frankl's book, you know, Man's Search for Meaning, you know, Albert Camus and and the myth, myth of Sisyphus. I mean, there's a lot of deep philosophical insights in that film that come out if you're looking for them. And it's also, you know, interesting enough, it's it's kind of a train wreck of a movie. And a lot of people, when they see the film, they're shocked by Nicolas Cage going down that rabbit hole but it's sort of like a, a, a wreck on the 405 freeway. Like you say, it's really, you don't want to look, but you, you have to look. Um, and, and sometimes it's good that you look because it reminds you that that could be you. You know, you're, you're just a couple levels removed from that sort of behavior and you don't want to end up like Nicolas Cage. Although it would be nice to win an Oscar, but you know what I mean. <laughs> right, right. 
And you also wrote about movies that were kind of like just you you called them cautionary tales. And the one that that you wrote about that I'm familiar with the most um, that that became kind of a joke was Reefer Madness. Here's a funny thing. You know, the whole story of Reefer Madness is sort of like a whole book in and of itself. The, the film was made by was funded by a Christian organization. And then it and then it, it really played into the Henry Anslinger, you know, the, the, the original war on drugs with the Harrison Narcotic Act of of the thirties. And, and back then really, because, because of they, they really wanted to deflect criticism away for the fact that they weren't going after the real public enemy number one, which was organized crime. And so they came up with the man, which was the, you know, the dope fiend, but really what it was, was a thinly veiled and not, not too thinly veiled and quite obvious uh, way to stigmatize uh, black people and Asians and Latinos and make it seem like they were the perpetrators. And, and and really, what what when you look back at historically, this was a this was a way to vilify people, um, and and the, the fact that like well, people are going to smoke dope and they're going to forget their place in social hierarchies and racial hierarchies, and so it was a very racist film, and and also the funny thing about the film is it's just so utterly horrible, and so and so it became the butt of jokes, um, you know, in midnight movie circuits. In fact, Robert Shea, who was the founder of New Line Cinema, picked up a copy of the, of the film and made copies because they had screwed up the copyright registration. And so he could exploit it. He made so much money on that film that he eventually ended up founding New Line Cinema. And the whole reason that we're looking at films like, you know, the Lord of the Rings trilogy and all the great New Line uh, Cinema movies is because of Reefer Madness. That's how he got his start. That's how New Line got its start. Uh, you know, it's a funny story, but, and, and I used to get really stoned and go watch the movie with my friends in Georgetown theaters at midnight uh, madness showings. Back in back when I was in high school, and we used to laugh our asses off. But the, when I realize it now, there's, there was really nothing funny about it. Um, it was really the first salvo in in what became this very tragic and trillion dollar waste of time and energy, which became the you know war on drugs, which had very sad um, sad endings for everybody, especially you know black and brown communities. Yeah. So I'm just kind of going through these in order. I don't know if that's the best way of doing it, but now I'm looking at Gia and Gia is the film. Um, do I remember right that that's actually based on a real character that, that, that Gia, yeah, yes. Gia Karanji. You know, what I found compelling about this is that, you know, it's not so much a story about a, a young girl who, um, who, you know, becomes addicted to heroin and then slowly, you know, tries really hard to get off it, but then slowly ends up, you know, digging her own grave and then eventually dying of intravenous uh, drug use, uh, AIDS complications derived from intravenous drug use. But the story of Gia is really a bigger story about how people, even at the top of their game, the most successful people, I mean, she had it all. She had like, she's making a million dollars a minute. She's being flown to photo shoots all over the world. I mean, by any metric, anybody would want to have her life. And yet she was a heroin addict and that destroyed her career. And so it's cautionary in the sense that like, you know, addiction really does not discriminate. And it has something very interesting to say about the fact that, you know, you can be very successful and sometimes fame and fortune is a burden that creates sort of existential ennui that you need to use drugs and alcohol to to overcome it. And, you know, we see this in popular culture now and, you know, Demi Lovato and all of these movie stars and, and music stars who are in rehab. Matthew, um, uh, the guy from Friends, you know, just had this huge news release and just released a book about it. 
um, you know, it, it touches every life. And, and in fact, sometimes the pressures of being, uh, you know, of fame and fortune are such that, you know, they, they medicate more than others. In fact, you know, as we know, sometimes doctors, you know, the most successful lawyers and doctors also self-medicate because of the stresses of being that, that, um, that successful. And it also tells you something about the fact that no matter how much you have and how successful you are, you're still, you know, stuck with yourself and your own issues and your own problems. And none of those factors can get you out of a hole if you dig it for yourself. You know, nothing will get you out. You have to do the work yourself. You can't pay. You can't buy yourself out of it. You can't publicize yourself out of it. Yeah. And look how how many successful actors have actually become, you know, have alcohol and drug problems. And more than, more than, more than, you know, Yeah, more than, you know. Yeah, I'm sure. I think my favorite part of the book, and maybe it was because I recently saw one of these films, Beautiful Boy, was when you were, um, you were writing about the films, but also the relationships between the characters and the, and the complexities and the problems of an addict and either their parent or their spouse. And I really, I never, I didn't see four good days, but I saw beautiful boy and that movie was just heart wrenching. You know what they, what the father went through with trying to figure out what was going on with his son. Well, and yeah, and I felt that to, to be fully balanced and just, instead of just showing the story of, you know, somebody using drugs and alcohol or some other maladaptive behavior, and then, um, you know, suffering the consequences, you know, we have to realize that that other people, um, friends and family members uh, suffer consequences as well. And they're sort of trapped in this <clears throat> in this conundrum, whereas you want to help, uh, uh, like, for instance, in the case of like a son or daughter, you want to help your son or daughter. But, um, you know, is it your fault that they've become addicted? Were you too strict? You know, woulda, coulda, shoulda. And so, you know, parents go through this sort of, you know, process of of always trying to figure out what did I do wrong? And then then they extend it even further to say, well, what can I do now to help my son or daughter? And a lot of times the help they try to give is not always the the help that they need. And so um, it's a very difficult situation. And so, you know, as friends and family uh, at Smart Recovery and other um, and other programs will tell you, you know, you have to draw boundaries and just like just like uh, the father and uh, David Schiff in, in Beautiful Boy had to eventually draw a boundary and say, I cannot help my son anymore. He's going to do what he's going to do. And I've lost control of this and I didn't control it from the beginning. I can't control it now. All I can do is just hope that he makes the right decision. And yet by doing that, cutting you know contact off with your son or daughter, you know that there's the risk that they may do more harm to themselves, be lonely, feel ostracized feel ashamed that they don't have their father or mother's love anymore. And then, you know, take a fentanyl overdose and die. And then the parent has to live with the, the consequences of that guilt of thinking, did I do enough? And, and so those are just heart wrenching kinds of issues that people deal with every day. And so to see it in a movie like, you know, beautiful boy um, is, is really important because it really touches millions of lives. In fact, I, I did sort of like a back of the napkin calculation of like, if 10% of the United States is addicted in some way, shape, or form to alcohol or drugs, and then each of these people know five people in, in terms of close relationships, with, which is the average, you've got, you know, 500 million people potentially, you know, affected by drug or alcohol use of a friend or a loved one or colleague. And that, that's a huge number. And everybody wants to do the right thing. But sometimes, you know, doing something is, is not the right uh, approach. And I talk a lot about, you know, the whole myth of codependency that, 
you know, uh, parents of addicted uh, sons or daughters feel that they have a problem. They need therapy. You know, they they have a disease. And, you know, a lot of this stuff is very uh, is not proven and really sort of, con- uh, you know, counterproductive. And I also wanted to tell the story of like relationships of alcohol, like Days of Wine and Roses is a classic. You know, I call it a menage a trois with with addiction where two people like who fall in love because of their alcohol use suddenly realize that when they quit drinking, they're not the same relationship. It's not it's not the same love affair. Or you look at a film like, um, you know, uh, When a Man Loves a Woman, where, you know, this, this where this a marriage is, is torn apart by the fact that one one of the people has an alcohol problem and goes to rehab. And when they emerge they're they're a completely different person. Um, and that's that's something that says something about the nature of love and the nature of, you know, relationships built on alcohol and drugs. And there's sadly, there are a lot of a lot of relationships are based on alcohol and drugs. Of all the movies that I've seen about addiction and recovery, I thought that When a Man Loves a, a Woman was the most realistic when it came to um, showing what a recovering person is like, you know, uh, when she was going through that phase of figuring out who she was and and how he could no longer recognize his wife and that relationship was changing. I just thought that was just so amazingly well done. Um, I love that movie. It's really a good one. It was. And, you know, it was made by Louis Mandoki, who actually is a friend of mine. And um, I was working with him to try to get some of his films set up at Universal. He's a very lyrical storyteller. He's a very underrated, sometimes forgotten artist um, who uh, is, is very unique in the sense that he was one of the first Mexican auteur cinema filmmakers to make it in the Hollywood studio system. And he sort of paved the way for others to follow, like um, Gonzalez Signaritu and Alfonso Cuaron and Guillermo del Toro, you know, all these big names from Mexico cinema. He was really the, a trailblazer and, and, and a very lyrical, beautiful storyteller who, who really told a very important story about um, not just recovery, but the story of, of what happens after re- recovery. You know, I think it was Gene Siskel or, uh, who said, you know, it's not so much a movie about recovery. It's a story about, you know, a person's recovery from a spouse's recovery. Um, in a sense, it has very many, you know, it has a lot of layers to it. Um, and it's something that I personally relate to as well because of my own life and, and other people relate to quite, you don't, you don't really have to be in or out or be in recovery or not to really understand what, what happens in that film is that sometimes your relationship, the foundation, the premise of your relationship changes and you have to fall in love all over again, if that's even possible. Right. I also thought it was interesting going back to Beautiful Boy and the other film, Four Good Days, that you um, you wrote about this um, idea of tough love. And I remember that that being like the thing when I was first getting sober. But you're not so much a proponent of that, are you? And that decision that they made, that the father made in the movie Beautiful Boy, that wasn't tough love either. That boundary that he drew, was it? Yeah, it's a very, it's a very gray area. And but unfortunately, you know, because of the severity of the problem, um, and and a book that was published, you know, several years back, which I discussed in the book, which is uh, Codependent No More, it was a huge hit. But you know, unfortunately, that that caused a lot of damage in the sense that, like, it created this idea that you know you're codependent if you're if you're taking care of a spouse or loved one or a family member w- with addiction. And the idea of tough love is is sort of you know it's sort of it can be picked apart on many many different levels. Like, so tough love would tell you you know the proponents of classic tough love would tell you that 
you know, if your son or daughter has, you know, uh, an issue with alcohol or drugs, you should call the police. They should hit rock bottom. You should make sure that you kick them out of the house, make sure that they're homeless, make sure that they turn to prostitution. That'll teach them. That's the only way to teach them. That's the only way to fix them is to make sure that they feel the pain. But we all know that that actually is entirely wrong. You know, at the time it might seem fine, but when that was created, that was during the time when, you know, Reagan era, three strikes, you're out, mandatory minimum drug sentencing, the whole idea that like punishment is the only way. But now, you know, as a society, we're much more enlightened and we, and we realize now that tough love is actually a really bad idea. And it's been scientifically proven that to, to not work at all, it's actually counterproductive. And a lot of treatment facilities that have advocated tr- tough love and forced parents to disengage from their children who are in rehab um, and then went on to commit suicide or have um, fentanyl or or other heroin overdoses, um, those parents have now sued the facilities uh, for giving them really, really bad advice to disengage and practice tough love when their kids were like this close to, you know, to coming around. And, and And that's really unfortunate. And then, you know, tough love also is gray in the sense that like, well, you know, how tough can it be? You know, are there mitigating circumstances? And, you know, if your son or daughter is, is a heroin addict, but they started because they had back pain and they started taking pain pills, but then they got addicted to the pain pills. And then the only alternative that they had was that they ran out of the pain pill medications and couldn't get prescriptions. And the cheapest thing to deal with their pain was heroin. And then that was their only recourse. And they're so afraid of going through rehab um, going through withdrawals because of the sickness involved that they'll do anything to get their 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 the money. They'll even like liquidate their parents' four hundred one k. Yes, that's horrible. But but they're operating under the premise that they're sick and they need help. And so uh, giving them help is is somewhat just is justified. Whereas you know society looks at somebody who's who's a heroin addict is like oh they made a choice to become a heroin addict. You know that's just a bad decision. They like partying. They like heroin. You know what they could have done? They could have gotten a job. They could have done anything. Um, And, you know, a lot of times that's true. There are are a lot of bad agents who are simply heroin addicts or drug addicts because they made bad decisions and now they're hooked. But um, we have to divorce, you know, the moral sentiments that we might have about drug addicts and alcoholics or, you know, to say uh, to call them alcoholics. We have to sort of like bifurcate that and say, there are reasons why people use drugs and alcohol, and not all of them are personal choices. Yes, they're personal choices because they choose to, but there are a lot of mitigating circumstances, past abuse, genetics, you know, something trauma, PTSD, you know, and a lot of these things are very situational. You, use your, you lose your job or COVID hits and you're stuck at home and you start drinking more than usual. Next thing you know, six months later, you're hooked. So, you know, is that a bad person? No, and speaking of reasons why people will use, you also wrote about a film I have not seen about Purdue Pharma and how they pushed Oxycontin out on the population. And that is so interesting. I, you know, that I, I need to see that. I need to see that film. Um, I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, it's, it's a series on Hulu called Dope Sick. And, you know, what's, what's unique about it is that, you know, there are several books about it and there was a, there was a documentary on HBO, but what I wanted to do was sort of like, go look at the storylines of, of that, of that series and sort of, you know, what does it have to say about all the interlocking pieces of that whole, um, you know, addiction epidemic, you know, the, the, all the bad agents. And there are so many parties involved. It's sort of like an epic novel with several storylines that are interwoven. It's, it's almost like a James Joyce novel in its complexity or, 
or a Faulkner novel in the sense that like you've got these, you know, these West Virginia coal miners who need pain medication because they have to go to work, even though they, they're injured themselves and they don't have any, um, any sick pay, uh, any paid leave or sick days. And then you have a doctor who should know better, but he really wants to help his, his clients. And then you have the people in the, in the, uh, the Purdue pharma sales department who are getting these young, young Turks who want to make fast money right out of college. And they're given these incredible incentives to really push the drug. And they're in every doctor's office, like really pushing, giving away free samples. And, and then you've got Purdue Pharma, you know, doing this marketing around, you know, made up conditions like breakthrough pain. And then, you know, them doing fake commercials using fake people saying, oh, it doesn't cause addiction at all. This is wonderful. And then you've got, you know, Purdue Pharma paying these, these advocacy groups to look the other way, paying, paying people from the FDA to, you know, approve special dispensations for, for uh, approval of the drug that was clearly, you know, um, addictive, you know, skewing data sets and giving some really, really bad uh, samples to the FDA where, you know, it's a classic case of lying with statistics. You know, there's so many interlocking pieces of that. And, you know, doctors who realized that they could actually make money by prescribing, which created pill mills. So there were so many perverse incentives all through the value chain that it became this perfect storm. And it's told beautifully in the series. And it's difficult to do because, you know, given the, the breadth of that story, to condense that down into a miniseries, you know, or 10 episodes is very challenging. You know, as a screenwriter, and I write TVC, in fact, I have a, a TV series in development right now, and, and I've sold several several TV scripts. It's it's not easy to do. It's it's a lot of work to, to really put all that information in a way that's going to be compelling and entertaining and engaging and something that's going to hold people's attention because there's so much information. Um, and yet they, they really did a wonderful job in, in, in pulling that off in a series. It's very important to see. And so all these, all these films that we've talked about so far are dealt with alcohol and drugs, but you also wrote about other addictions that you called micro addictions. And I think the one that I found the most interesting that you wrote about was sex addiction. And the reason I found that so interesting, I'm not, I'm not real sure if I know your stance on this, if, whether it's an addiction or not, but it was really interesting to read the different ways you can look at it. Like you can look at it as, you know, society just sees sex, society puts judgments on sex that they shouldn't, you know, you talk about John Waters movie where he's just kind of outrageous out there, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if you could talk about how you feel about the, you know, the idea of sex addiction and the, what you were trying to say with the films that you chose to wrote about on that subject. Yes. Well, you know, se sex addiction is, is a micro addiction. It's like any other uh, uh, addiction. It's a feedback loop. And it's actually one of the most powerful feedback loops. It's actually the first and only right. feedback loop that makes any sense. I mean, we, we, we have three mandates in life. One is to, you know, to wake up and eat, and the other one is to have sex, and then we can go home, and we've done what we're supposed to be doing in, in humanity. And so, given that, you know, it's it's, it's there's something really funny about the sense, like you know, to be addicted to sex and want to have sex all the time is actually, from a genetic point of view, from the point of view of like Richard Dawkins and the selfish gene, that's a home run. That's the reason there's so many people in the world, and why we're so tremendously successful as a species, and why evolution works because of the urge to, to procreate uh, more than usual, but what is usual, you know, who defines what, right, right. and also, you know, and what, what is an aberrant, you know, what is sex addiction? A lot of people think that it's like, you know, 
addictive to sex means, you know, you're addicted to masturbation and you're hiring prostitutes and you have like bad sex and illicit sex or sex with animals or gay sex or, and, and you know what, those are all expressions of sexual things. There are things called paraphilia, which are explored in this John Waters movie, A Dirty Shame. But, you know, he does it in the sense that like, you know, these are people that are just following their bliss. They're not hurting anybody. They just happen to like different kinds of sex. And yet, as a society, and of course, since, you know, Christians and Catholic, everybody, anybody with a religious background hates John Waters. Because <laughs> he's such like, he's like a lightning rod for, for controversy. <laughs> that. Um, I love him. I, he's, a, he's a good friend of mine. But um, uh, the, the, the issue is that, you know, if we're judging sex and what it should be, then, you know, we're really setting ourselves up into a trap. And we realize that everybody's putting their own, uh, their own, their own biases and their own judgments into an analysis of, of what is a purely private concern, which is how you want to have sex. And yet, by the same token, when you see a movie like Shame and you see, you know, Michael Fassbender, who clearly has a problem, it's clearly suffering, clearly is screwing up his relationships, it's making it impossible for, for him to have a normal, healthy relationship with a woman. Um, we realize that, yes, this is a pathology. It causes harm. It breaks up marriages. It causes turmoil. It, it, it you know, it erodes trust. It, it causes diseases. It causes death sometimes. And so, you know, yes, it's a serious thing. But, you know, by the same token, you could look at sex addiction as like the Tiger Woods defense um, in many respects. You know, like it's a very easy thing to sort of pull out of the woodwork if you if you happen to be somebody, somebody who cheats. and. You know, let's face it, a lot of people, not just men, a lot of people cheat. Um, are they sex addicts? You know, no, they're just following their bliss. Yes, they happen to be married. Not a good thing. Breaks up their marriages. But are they addicts? Like, do they need help? Do they need rehab? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> those are those are questions that I thought were worth exploring in the book. Um, and I don't have answers to a lot of these questions. Really, what I do is I use films as a way to pose the questions and then I really invite the, the person who reads the book to, to think about those questions um, as they relate to their own lives and their own issues. And I did. I found that fascinating. I, th I thought it was a really interesting discussion. You know, you, you, you wrote about the genetics behind it and how we evolved as, as creatures and, and the different ways of looking at sex and how it has been looked at historically. I, I, just, I just found it really, really interesting. Well, thanks. Yeah, I thought it was interesting to also talk about the history of sex in Hollywood. You know, most people don't realize that the first films were pornographic films, peep shows. <laughs> That's right. So really, you know, again, a new technology <laughs> owes its success to sex, just like <laughs> what sex did for the Internet. Right. You know, it, it did for movies. And so and then, you know, the Hayes Code and you know, et cetera. And so sex in movies has waned and gone up and down. And there used to be so much sex in movies. And now there isn't any hardly any sex in movies. And, and I explained why that happened as well. Yeah. And you wrote about food addiction too. Was that, was that your first addiction? Did you, did you have an issue with that? Yeah, I was, a I was the first kid to hit a hundred pounds when I was a kid. And, you know, a lot of my, a lot of my, a lot of my friends probably were about to hit a hundred pounds anyway, but I was the first. And so they taunted me. And ever since then, I had like this dysfunctional relationship with food. And I kind of still do. And a lot of, a lot of people do. Um, you know, I eat right, I exercise and everything, but you know, I'm like a lot of people, like most people, like I always think about what I eat and it's kind of a drag, you know, to always be thinking and worrying and like, oh no, I shouldn't eat that. And 
okay, I'll, I can I can allow myself to have this dessert this one time. It's just a lot of mental yeah, energy. You look great though. <laughs> and, and, it's a lot of, and it's a lot of work that's very much like being addicted to alcohol or drugs because when you're addicted to drugs, you're always planning when you can drink or when you can use and whether you should get away with it or not. And like, maybe I shouldn't, maybe I can. And so it's very much food is an addiction that many people have. And they have a dysfunctional, not, not an addiction per se, but they have a dysfunctional relationship with food. And so I wanted to talk about that by using a movie about that um, called Fatso. A terrible movie. Uh, it's not one that I recommend that you see. Just read the book instead of watching the movie. But the book, but the movie has some very profound, very prescient things to say. It was made like 50 years ago, but it touches on everything from like what, what dieting ended up becoming. It forecasted the Atkins Revolution. It forecasted the keto diet. It, it, you know, it has a lot of very interesting things to say about acceptance and um, and things like that. And also, you know, how Hollywood has dealt with the issue of of obesity and how it's used fat comics and fat actors to make money. And at the same time, but you know, it's okay to make you know use fat actors and actresses to make money because they're funny, like you know, Chris Farley and John Belushi, it's funny on one level, but then they end up dying because of it as well. So it's sort of like a double-edged sword. Uh, you know, fat is funny in some contexts, but it's not funny in others. And there's a very fine line. And a lot of people tread that line and it's very dicey. It's a very complicated subject. And I thought it was very important to talk about it in a much more open way. And that's why I think talking about it in the, in the context of movies is a very sort of cleansing way to talk about a, a very dis- difficult, thorny problem that thousand millions of people suffer from in one way or another and to, to various degrees. Oh, I love it. You know, people are going to read this book and they're going to, they're going to learn about addiction, but you're going to want to see these films too. You know, I, there, I want to see a lot of these films and some of these films I've seen that I want to see again and think about them as a, after I've have read this book. Now, the, the, the last section of movies that you wrote about had to deal with recovery. And I happen to have seen every single one of these, every single mm-hmm. one of these. And I thought they were great. And so clean and sober that movie is really special to me because it came out the year I got sober. Oh, and good. as you wrote, he also made a uh, Beetlejuice the same year. Yeah. It's, you know, it's interesting. Uh, he's a very interesting actor in the sense that like he had, he could really, you know, he, and he got cast as Batman, you know, and, and he could have, he could write his ticket, do any movie that he wanted. Yet he chose to make a movie that was, you know, very controversial at the time. Nobody had ever made a movie about, um, you know, inpatient rehab. It was the first movie of its kind. And, you know, it was a brave, it was a brave value proposition. And, you know, everybody behind it took a big risk and Michael Keaton took a big risk and it paid off. I mean, he, he got a lot of, uh, a lot of attention from it. He didn't win any Academy Awards, I don't think, but he did get like the film critics uh, mentioned an award for his portrayal. But it was a, really the first time that, you know, you could see that Michael Keaton was a serious actor because here he was typecast as like, I'm Batman and I'm Beetlejuice. And he's all these things. And yet now we know that he is way much more than, than just, you know, those things. He has blossomed as, as an actor who's winning Academy Awards and, and you know, won the Emmys for, for Dope Sick. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's, he's a real person. And, but, and that's another example of an actor who took a big risk. And he probably didn't get paid anything. He probably got paid scale to do the movie uh, because it was very, it was pretty relatively low budget movie, but it paid off for him in the sense that like, 
you know, it takes courage to do those kinds of roles and to play an addict who, who nobody really likes. He's a coke addict and he helps somebody OD and he could care less. And he's trying to phone it in at rehab and he doesn't take it seriously. And then eventually he, you know, over time he comes to accept that fact and then he succeeds in recovery, which is a great, you know, rags to riches hero overcoming adversity story. And in the sense, it mirrors, you know, the story of, of uh, Michael Keaton in real life. You know, typecast actor, really, really bad job decisions, low ebbs in his career, and then resurrecting himself Phoenix-like from the ashes of a failed career to now be, you know, being paid $20 million a movie. He's one of my favorite actors. I've never seen any of the Batman movies, but he's one of my favorite. But, you know, the thing about that, I hate to make this about me, but damn it. when I, that, <laughs> that movie. I want so, people to make it about that. <laughs> that movie in 1988 I was feeling everything that he felt. And I have never in my life had that experience watching a movie and relating to the characters so well. And what was so funny, Beetlejuice was playing at another theater, right? And it was playing at the dollar theater. I saw that movie more than any other movie ever in my life. And the reason what I would do, because I had no job, I needed to escape. So I would give him a dollar. I'd watch the movie. The movie would end. I'd go back out. I'd go back in, give him a dollar. I'd watch it repeatedly. And it was like a great escape. So I have on one hand, Michael Keaton giving me the reality of addiction and recovery and me feeling it to my gut. And then on the other hand, he was helping me escape from all the bullshit too. So anyway. Life is, life is nothing but mysterious. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's very ironic. And that's what I try to convey in the book is that like, you know, the story of addiction, recovery, and, and life in general is very complex. It's as complex and nuanced as, 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 as movies are. And then you also wrote about, okay, in, in these recovery films. Okay, the one I didn't see was Recovery Boys, but I did see 28 Days and Thanks for Sharing. I liked Thanks for Sharing. I thought that was a, I thought that was a really good film about, about the relationships of people in recovery. You know, I wanted to end the, movie, the book with that uh, movie particularly because I had never seen it. Um, at the time, it was marketed as a movie about sex addicts. And that was sort of like it was the first time that they really wanted to market it. But they sort of lost their nerve. And this sort of the, the movie came out and it had this huge cast and, you know, big production values and beautiful look and feel and everything. But it sort of didn't really go anywhere. But And I hadn't seen it. But when I saw it and then I saw it again and I watched it the third time, I realized that it is actually an incredible, like if you know about addiction recovery and you're in recovery, it is actually one of the most profound and important movies made about recovery um, in, of all the movies that I had seen. It, I think it's a very important film because it really, it touches on the issue of family and friends. It touches on the issue of, of like what recovery looks like, what 12 step looks like, what, you know, other modalities of recovery look like. It looks, looks, looks at not just sex addiction, but the idea of being addicted and looking for help and, and finding solutions. So it's sex addiction, alcohol addiction, drug addiction. And, and also it has some very profound things to say about the nature of forgiveness and, and how to atone for past sins and how you deal with somebody who has an alcohol problem. I mean, let's face it, you know, a lot of people in the world are married to people who are, you know, who are in recovery and have been in recovery for, you know, many years. And everything seems fine. But anybody in who's the spouse of somebody in recovery knows that all it takes is a flick of a switch. You know, uh, there's no such thing as sobriety for life. There's always the non-zero possibility 
that somebody might relapse. And it, it does happen. I know people who, you know, I, I know a guy in the park who's a meth addict right now who went to, was a pillar in his community. And he was in an AA and smart recovery for many, many years and a, a p- pillar of his community and went and took counseling courses and became a counselor. And for some stupid, odd reason that he still doesn't understand, he decided to have a couple of drinks at a bar one night for no reason at all. He wasn't even stressed out. He just thought, I can do it. And cut to six months later, he's living in a park and he's lost everything. There's always the possibility of that happening. And people live with that constant threat. It's sort of like this looming threat of imminent disaster that hangs over everybody who's in a relationship with somebody who has a substance or alcohol use disorder. And so, you know, all you can do is just take care of yourself, be vigilant and, you know, put systems in place to, 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 to love, but verify. And, and then, and those are very profound things to say um, in a movie. And, and there's just, it's just chock full. I, I really highly recommend it. It's also very entertaining. And, Good music in there too, I thought. Yeah. And Gwyneth Paltrow is, is astounding. And Mark Ruffalo, who I sometimes find milk toast, does a great job. And, and Pink, she steals the movie. And then Josh Gad, who went, went on to be Olaf, um, you know, he's, he's hysterical. There's just something that something for everybody in that movie. And, and it's a very important film to see uh, for anybody in recovery, I think. So just to wind things up. Um, so I signed up for something um, that is related to this book. So you're going to um, tell me about this. I'm going to be getting a newsletter once a month, I think. The Addicted in Film Movie Club. The um, I, I wrote the book, but I also want to, I want to keep the conversation going. And so, um, and there's all these other movies that I couldn't fit into the book. You know, my editor finally said, stop writing, Ted. You, you, you know, you don't really, you don't want a book to be this big. You just, you're done. You've reached like 90,000 words. Let's make it for the next book. I was like, okay. So there's all these other films that I wanted to talk about um, that I still want to talk about. So, you know, once you, if you go to my website, www addictedinfilm.com you can you can sign up for the addicted in film movie club and it's free um and you just sign up and that puts you on our email list and then every month i'm going to send out an email like a newsletter it's going to have like a review of a new movie um about addiction and recovery um and then some video and some podcasts and some other rich media content and invitations for people to join in uh what i call uh watch party movie nights I so love it. Um, yeah, Amazon has these things called watch parties. So what you can do is for the first hundred people, once you reserve after the invitation goes out, you can all watch the same movie at the same time. And then uh, there's a Zoom call right afterwards. And then we hop on the Zoom and we just talk about the movie and sort of chat to see like, what, what, what did you get out of it? And what are your thoughts? And I also want to like engage with the community. It's like, what kind of movies spoke to you? Because I, I don't, you know, sometimes people will send me like, hey, did you did you cover this movie? And I'm like, I never heard of it. <laughs> wow, it sounds great. So, uh, you know, I'm open to hearing what people suggest. And, and by engaging with the community through the movie club, I hope that all of us can have like a deeper understanding of all the movies and that have, you know, interesting things to say about addiction recovery that can help us all in our own recovery journey or just keep us entertained and happy and, and talking about something that, you know, a problem that a lot of people would like to solve in some way, shape or form. And if movies is a part of that, then my job is done. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, so I'm going to put links out when we post this podcast and video, there'll be links to your website where you can uh, find the book, where you can join that, uh, that club and uh, all the, any other information that you would want us to put out there where people can contact you and learn more about oh, you. Thank you. Also, the audiobook version is coming out in oh, yeah. you know, a week. 
So, you know, if you prefer to, to listen to the audiobook, I narrated it. And so uh, there's a lot of, as you read the book, you realize there's a lot of like snarky, sarcastic, funny anecdotes and funny stories about my crazy time in Hollywood. I mean, it was a crazy ride. And, and I like to relay those stories, you know, in my own voice. So I hope people really enjoy that part of it. I mean, partly it's, yes, it's about recovery and addiction, but there's some really funny stories in there that I think people will find uh, kind of amusing. Well, you did a great job. Thank you so much for writing the book and for coming on uh, this podcast to talk about it. Uh, it was really nice of you to take the time to do that. And I really appreciate it. Oh, no, thanks, John. You keep up the great work. I love your, your initiative. I love your website. That's another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety. Thank you for listening. If you would like to support our podcast with recurring monthly contributions, head on over to patreon.com slash beyondbeliefsobriety or become a member of our YouTube channel. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution, then visit our website beyondbeliefsobriety.com and click on the donate button. I do appreciate your support. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again real soon with another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety.